The Hargan women seemed to have it all. We were blessed. My mom was amazing. But detectives would soon discover... Inside the house, there were the bodies of two women. A story of betrayal you would struggle to believe if it wasn't true. I am just praying to God this is a sick joke. From 48 Hours, this is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings, wherever you get your podcasts. In honor of the 4th of July holiday, we will not release an episode next week. We will resume our regular schedule the following week. This podcast may contain content that is graphic and disturbing in nature. Listener discretion is advised. If you are just tuning in, we encourage you to go back and listen from episode one. Previously on Direct Appeal. They had bags that contained victims' parts. We had been able to show that the composition of the bags and the style of the bags was identical. You can't say for sure that this bag came out of the same box. But you can say, what are the odds are that it didn't? I mean, you can never be totally certain of anything, but 99%. You have to be the judge as to whether someone else could have accessed those same bags and committed this crime. Who else could have had that? These results that were presented by the state weren't valid. But once I got the report, I was astonished that his own data shows that the bags didn't match. Really uh, a charade. And I also think that there was huge prosecutorial misconduct, blatant and deliberate. This is episode 10, The Best Defense. Uh, Last week, we continue with the prosecution's case, hearing from two plastics experts regarding the garbage bag testimony. This week, we get to start the defense's case. Melanie had Joe Tacopina and Stephen Toronto as her two defense attorneys. Now, I know that we discussed Joe a little bit, but I'm going to refresh here just for people who need a reminder. Joe began as a prosecutor in Kings County Prosecutor's Office, but then he switched to criminal defense attorney, as we know a lot of prosecutors wind up doing at a certain point. He's had a number of famous clients. Um, we discussed one of them, Lilo Broncado, Foxy Brown. He even represented Euron Vandersloot. Do you remember him from the Natalie Holloway ca- case? Yeah, I can't. How could you not? I, I know. I don't know in what he represented him and his father at one point. Probably. Not for the disappearance, probably for charges after. Because I know there were a lot of different things going on. There were tons. Mm-hmm. And I didn't realize at the time he represented them, but he did. I mean, he's had I mean, a number of high Foxy profile. Foxy Brown, that's pretty. Yeah, he's he's got high profile um, yeah. clients. He's been in several magazines. GQ referred to him. <laughs> I like this one. I saw this quote. G- GQ referred to him as the best dressed, smooth talking, hardworking criminal defense attorney wow. in the business. Um, and he's I'm received- sure that didn't affect his ego. I don't, right? <laughs> wow. Well, yeah. Um, he's received praise as one of the most prominent trial attorneys in America. He serves as an analyst for several media outlets and on and on. He, and he's currently practicing. Oh, yeah. He owns an Italian soccer team, if I'm wow. not mistaken. He didn't want to talk for the podcast, did he? Well, we reached out to him twice mm-hmm. and extended two invitations, and he did not respond to either. Okay. We also invited his co-counsel, Stephen Toronto. We sent him two invitations as well. Um, Stephen Toronto was the New Jersey guy, because Joe was a New Yorker. So um, Stephen Toronto actually graduated from Fordham Law School in 1991, and he's a criminal attorney in New Jersey with offices in Newark right now. So he's pretty close to us. I know. just show up in his office. I thought about it. (laughs) I sent an invitation, and I was going to send a follow-up. I'll be right over. Yeah, right. Um, (laughs) So if I— So that couldn't have been a cheap defense team there. No. Especially for Takapina. 
No, no, this is not a cheap defense. This is, you know, this is again regarded as, uh, you know, kind of the dream team. Yeah. Um, Melanie's friend Celine said it later. Like she thought when they got Joe, she thought we hit the jackpot for sure. Um, Steve Toronto, a solid lawyer as well. So this is, you know, again, for all purposes, this is what we look at as, as a strong defense. Mm-hmm. Um, so the two of them take on her defense and things are looking up. You know, they had been through a number of lawyers. If you recall, yeah. they had been through something like five attorneys. So they settle on on these two in a great way and they're feeling really good. So how does the defense go? Well, we know the prosecution called a lot of witnesses. I think if you recall, I said something north of 60 witnesses. Mm-hmm. It's between 60 and 75, although I can't recall the exact number. Mm-hmm. Um, I think I've gotten two different numbers when I, I actually counted mm-hmm. and got like two different numbers, but I think it was 64 to 72 is where we're at. So they're calling everyone. They've got experts, you know, they've got ballistic experts. They've got toxicologists. They've got forensics. Joe's got his roster, right? So who are they going to call? Do they call a lot of witnesses? Well, I don't really think so. He calls about, I counted his as well, and I think he calls about 14 witnesses in total. Oh, wow. Which doesn't seem like a lot comparatively. Now, the defense probably does not call as many witnesses Mm -hmm. normally, but we're talking about a real gaping disparity here. And of those 14 witnesses, six of those were character witnesses, specifically. family and friends. Pretty much. Yeah, six of them are family and friends. I will say she had strong character witnesses. Um, they called, uh, Joe called some of the patients mm-hmm. from her practice and they really, really gave her glowing, you know, reports. She was the best. Mm-hmm. I couldn't have gotten through this with her. Uh, you know, couldn't have had nicer things to say about Melanie and her being a supportive nurse. And those are people that don't have any stake in it. No stake whatsoever. As far whatsoever. as like her best friend and her family. No stake whatsoever. I remember reading when I was, you know, looking into all the media on this case, I remember there was a forum. It was almost like a a fertility group, um, mm-hmm. uh, you know, she was a fertility nurse and they were all, you know, questioning how could it be Melanie? She's the best. She's this wonderfully kind, you know, they have nothing but nice things to say about her. Obviously, they don't usually call character witnesses that are going to say of course, bad things. <laughs> so um, they had great things to say about her, but, you know, this is six character witnesses. They called Elizabeth LeBlue and she was the woman who said that she had had a one-night fling with Bill. So, you know, they're calling to kind of show what else is going on in in Bill's life. Mm -hmm. They called Marcy, his ex-wife, who we're going to discuss shortly. They called George Lowry, um, who was an ex-colleague of Bill's, and George Lowry relates to the gun. Mm -hmm. They called Sally Ginter, as we know. We've already covered Sally as their their plastics um, expert. But they hadn't, remember, they hadn't even intended to call Sally. She was a surprise witness. They called Jesse Linmar, as we also know, to talk about the computer. And then they called, um, there was two other people. One was from the kids' school mm-hmm. and then a, a private investigator. Mm-hmm. And I'm really not sure how much the private investigator had to add. You yeah. know, maybe a couple of things that he did, a couple of his findings, but this is their, their whole And list. the employee from the kids' school was probably to speak to that morning in question about uh, yes, picking yes. up the prescription. And then, I'm sorry, one more witness who was actually a strong witness for them was Carol Chasky, who we'll get to as well. And she's the forensic linguist. Oh, So this is their entire roster. Now, Throughout the trial prep, they had contracted other experts. I know they had Michael Bodden, um, and you know mm, he's yeah. his reputation as um, 
uh, I guess a pathologist, you mm. might say, is very strong. Yep. But they decided not to use him because essentially, as Melanie said, his um, testimony would have corroborated what Dr. Hua said about whether or not someone like skin cells could come from someone who was alive or dead. Mm-hmm. He didn't have much to add, although he has a name that he might and have he been was able probably to. probably very expensive, right? So they, Very expensive. Yeah. I think also Melanie said that they spent earlier on money on experts um, earlier, you know, who, who did work for them and contracted, but then they didn't put them on the stand. So, okay, so she, he, they put up the, the you know, some of these character witnesses and they put up, you know, a computer person. They put up a ballistics person as well, but the ballistics person didn't really help. But there are, um, let's go through some of the witnesses. I'm going to go through some of the ones that they could have called and the ones that they did and what happened. One of the witnesses that Melanie had told me about who was not called, who could have been a critical witness, her name was Dawn Zhu, and she was a neighbor of Melanie's whose apartment was located behind Melanie's and somewhat diagonal. So she was one of those apartments behind Melanie's um, with whom Melanie shared a wall. Mm -hmm. And she gave a statement to the police at some point about a month or two after, I guess, Bill's disappearance, saying that she heard an argument between a couple late at night and into an early morning hour um, around the time that Melanie said this fight happened with Bill. So this seems kind of important. That would be the only person to date that has ever corroborated that story. Right. But to what extent did she actually corroborate it? Um, Melanie said that she would have made a strong witness. uh, And I asked, well, why wasn't she a witness? Right. Um, And Melanie said, well, uh, you know, my team said that she was not in the country at the time. So let's hear. There was a general canvassing of the apartment complex. And this neighbor had stated that she had heard an argument. And she had heard certain phrases, certain things within the argument. And there was never anything else at least recorded in the investigation reports. So that was something we found by accident going through as much as we could. It was like, oh, wow, look at this. Of course, I I say to Joe and Steve, we we have to find this lady. She had moved at that point, and I was told by them that from the best information they had that she had left the country. That was kind of the end of that. So, whatever, time goes by, trial's done. I am at the stage uh, back in like 2011, 2012, where I'm in the process of doing post-conviction relief, and I'm assigned a public defender who says, yeah, you know what, I have an investigator who's assigned to this case. Let me just see if I can run down this person, just, just to see, just to double check. Well, not only is she alive, well, and living in the good old U.S. Bay, she's never left the state of New Jersey. She actually did sit down uh, and speak with the investigator assigned to my case, and they were able to flush out that she had heard something late April of 2004. She could not say exactly when. Time frame was around, I can't remember what she said exactly, but it was like that 2 to 4 a.m. time frame. Perhaps what's more important than what she heard is what she didn't hear, which is, you know, um, power tools, a gunshot, anything like that. She was able to actually make out part of the argument. She heard him yelling something about, we've been together five years now. I don't remember everything that got said that night, and we argued a lot. But at that point in time, 
we had been married for five years. You know, nobody expects him to set aside a conviction at that point, but at least to gain, the goal is to gain an evidentiary here, flush this stuff out further, and to be told that none of this even bears examination. In fact, there was an affidavit from Dalton Zhu included with all of this, and it was basically just dismissed. Everything was either dismissed as harmless error or it wouldn't have mattered because there was so much other information that was incriminating. Okay, so I have the Don Zhu affidavit and I'm going to read it. Mm -hmm. It's not terribly long. Can I just ask you a quick question? Yes. Um, Prior to that, it was in the police records. Something that she had originally said was the prosecution supposed to turn that over and they didn't. Melanie says that they found it, her side. What does that mean? They found it. Any thought on that? Yeah, let me let me read this first because okay. it might answer part of the question okay. and then I'll come back to it, okay? Mm-hmm. All right, so from Dawn Zhu, and I'll skip the identifying, you know, where she mm-hmm. lives and whatnot, but at the time she lived right behind them. On March 14th, 2005, I gave a statement to an investigator from the Middlesex Prosecutor's Office regarding an argument that I had heard coming from a neighboring apartment on Plaza Drive. The statement was recorded on tape. All of the information which I gave in that statement was truthful and accurate to the best of my ability. Although I could not remember the exact date of the argument, it definitely happened before June of 2004. I also remember that about two months after the argument, a police officer came to my apartment and I told him about it. The argument occurred around 5 a.m. on a weekday morning and went on for about an hour. I was asleep and was awakened by the sound of a woman yelling. There was another voice, but it was low that I was not even sure if it was a man or another woman. It was, I'm sorry, it was so low that I was not sure if it was a man or another woman. The woman was pretty angry and said something like, I've been with you for five years. It sounded like she was being blamed for something by the other party and she was not happy about that. She thought that she had been doing a lot. A lot more was said, but because English is not my native language, I could not catch it. I did not hear any, I did not hear any other loud noises. I only heard voices. At the time, I thought the argument was coming from the apartment above mine, but I never found out the source of the voices. No one contacted me to ask me to be a witness in court regarding what I heard. Okay, so can you help me understand this? So the prosecution spoke to her and the police spoke to her. Was the And the prosecution didn't turn over? How was that not a Brady violation? I'm not sure if they never turned it over. I, I actually think that they did turn it but over. But why wouldn't Joe use it then? I, I'm pretty sure the prosecution did turn it over. And what Melanie was saying was that Joe, they tried to find Don Zhu and Joe or her team, someone on her team, she wasn't sure if it was Joe or Steve, said, well, we can't find her. She's out of the country. And she, she must have left the country. I thought that was based on appeal that they tried to find her. Well, they tried to find her for the trial. Gotcha. Okay. Uh, to be a witness, right? And so, but they said they couldn't. And so on a, not on a whim, but in part of her post-conviction relief, her public defender at the time said, and her public defender at that point was Lois DiGiulio. Mm-hmm. She said, I have an investigator. Why don't we just try to find Don Zoo? And lo and behold, Melanie says, there she was in New Jersey. She had always lived there. What I suspect happened is that she she said in her affidavit, English was not her native speaking um, language. So what I suspect happened was that maybe they went to go find her and she was out of the country visiting family. I don't know, perhaps somewhere else. And so she might have actually been out of the country, but it doesn't mean she left the country no, for good. Gotcha. She never changed her residence, but they couldn't locate her, they said, at the time as a witness. So the reason why this wasn't um, useful for her in her post-conviction relief was because they claimed it was a harmless error. Is that correct? Yes. Okay. Yes. Sorry. I just wanted to quickly, for people that don't understand what a harmless error is, because it's a really 
interesting part of our system, right? So harmless error, if you appeal based on something and the court believes that it would not change the outcome of the case, it is considered quote unquote harmless, which is quite subjective, right? So for example, let's say you have a case where, you know, they're trying to get a confession thrown out, right? Mm -hmm. And they say it's harmless because we also have the guy on video doing it and we have his DNA, right? So yes, the confession may have been coerced, but it was a harmless error because we had all this other stuff. That's absolutely correct. And the thing is they attribute a lot to harmless error. Yeah. Um, so if you read, a lot of appeals do, they'll, they'll find that a lot of issues are harmless. And what Melanie would say, what I would say too, is harmless to who? I know, that's <laughs> why it's, it's way too subjective of a criteria. Melanie actually wrote a story. She wrote, you know, one of her, for, you know, the book that we're doing. And she titled her piece, her narrative, her personal story, Harmless Error. Oh, that's great. I know, because um, it fits us perfectly. So you'll read a lot of these things and go, oh, this seemed really important. Yeah. But then they go, nah, it was an error, but... Prosecution, you just believe they had a strong enough case that it didn't yeah. matter. Yeah, I mean, we're definitely going to get to this when we get to the appeal too. Yeah. Um, what do you think about this, this so, affidavit? What do you think? I mean, so part of me feels like, you know, she can't say exactly what date it happened no. on. And by all accounts, they fought a lot. So yes, this would possibly, you know, partially corroborate Melanie's statement about that fight. But if they were, if their marriage was in as much turmoil as stated, by, you know, Melanie and others, this could have been happening every night. Did (laughs) Dawn, like, I don't know that Dawn touched on this, but I'd love to ask her, how often did you hear these voices? How often did you hear fighting? Because if this was, if she says, oh, every other day. Well, actually, you you have to assume that she didn't because she only remembered one argument over a couple of months. So you have to assume. There was one big one, yeah. You have to assume, though, that she's not, I'm sure if she had heard several arguments, she would have referenced it because this was, you know, a couple of months after. So she might have been, oh, yeah, I've heard. Uh, So you have to assume at least that this is one in a a short time period that stood out. Yeah. The other thing is she talked about 5 a.m. to 6 a.m. Melanie's timeline puts that fight much earlier in the evening, no? Like more like a one, two o'clock, if I remember correctly. Melanie's timeline for, uh, she said that the argument began sometime after two. Oh, okay. Uh, They had fallen asleep on the couch and she said it began sometime after two, went on for hours and she couldn't remember exactly what time. She said she eventually left the bathroom sometime between 5.30 and 6 a.m., Okay. And she said they were still fighting through the bathroom. Like he was yelling but at her. But he wasn't there when she left the bathroom. No, that's when she said that she heard him leave. Okay. According to Melanie, yeah. she heard him leave. And when she heard him leave, she waited, you know, five minutes and then left the bathroom, which is about 5.30 a.m. So if Dawn's timeline is accurate, then she heard the yelling almost right before Bill left. But yet the fighting was going on for hours before that. Correct. When was the dryer sheet incident supposedly towards the beginning of that towards fight? Towards the beginning, so way that's earlier. why you would expect the most yelling to be around that time. Because if she's in the bathroom, she wouldn't have probably been yelling that Dawn would have hurt. You would have thought that the yelling by Melanie would have been yelling outside of the bathroom. Yeah, it would, I would be think interesting so. to know where's the bathroom in reference to Dawn. Dawn's apartment. Right? Yeah, I was thinking the same thing because maybe she did hear her more because, and maybe they didn't normally fight in the bathroom, which is why she hadn't heard arguments in the past. I, I would, and I would you think know. you were right. Also, she had, she claimed that she had her son in the bathroom. So if she had her son in the bathroom, I doubt she's screaming at him also with but her she, son. But she'd be screaming through the door. And also that would mean she's yelling louder. She's yelling through a door, right? 
So maybe Dawn heard, Dawn said she heard a woman's voice. And also though, Amy, I mean, Dawn gave her best recollection about the time. Maybe she's off by a little bit. That's true. She heard her time might not be two, but maybe she's saying around five, but it was 4.30. Yeah, that's true. You know what I mean? So the time's close enough. That makes it. It's close Prob- enough that it, it it definitely lends some credence, I would say. I think this would have been an important witness. She didn't have many witnesses. Yeah. So I'm thinking any, you know, someone standing up and saying, well, I heard something. Yeah. What a mistake to not have her. I'm going to call it a mistake. Yeah. I think that should have been someone that would have been on the stand. And I'm assuming Dawn lived alone? I don't know. Um, there was no information contained yeah. in the affidavit about whether or not she had family uh, or children or anything. That was it. Every, everything I read you was everything that was contained hey, in there. Hey, Dawn, call us. <laughs> and so I was thinking this. <laughs> I was thinking the same thing. Um, I did look for a Dawn Zoo and I did contact one who turned out not to be the Not Dawn to be the zoo. right one. Okay. So yes, Dawn, right. um, if you are listening, we'll say this again. <laughs> we, we'd love to hear from you. So, uh, okay. So Dawn Zoo was, I guess, I think um, we could maybe agree to some extent a missed witness. A missed and critical. I would love to talk to her defense team. Maybe they have a really good reason why they didn't, you know, they say that they couldn't find her, but maybe they thought that she wouldn't have been as strong as we're thinking she is. Who knows? I think that was part of the reason, too. I, I think when Melanie and I discussed this, and it might not have exactly been in that interview, but I, I'm really sure that at one point um, she mentioned that they were like, look, she maybe heard something that happened right before, you know, the crime, but there's no exact time frame. Like, it's not as good as you but think it is. what she didn't hear is just as important as what she heard. Like she said. Right? I, I think they maybe, I, you know, we can't speak to what they yeah. thought, but maybe they thought, look, it's not, you know, it's not that close. It's, yeah. you know, we have no idea what the time frame Was is. Was her or her next door neighbor's home, do you know? Like, has there been any talk about the people that actually shared the wall? I'm assuming they didn't hear anything or else it would have been included somewhere. I don't think somewhere, they heard anything. But, okay. Yeah. So they, they, strange. I mean, they probably were home, but I guess they didn't hear anything. Okay. Maybe they just didn't want to get involved. Sound sleepers. Who knows, right? Maybe they didn't want to get involved. That's possible as well. You know? Um, it's possible. Okay. So Dawn's used someone, at the very least, who might have had some interesting information to mm-hmm. share during the trial. And Melanie talks about how, you know... Um, you know, she's concerned and she realizes she thought Joe did a great job with the cross-examination of the prosecution's witness. But now she's not sure. Now she's going, well, come to our witnesses. I think Joe's falling short. She has concerns. Joe tells the court that we have limited resources and he's not going to use it on a pathologist. That's why we didn't turn over a report from Michael Bodden because our resources were, were tight. We weren't going to use him. Then he tells the court that the resources are tapped out and he cites a late handwriting expert report from the state. But he, then he turns around and says, we're not prejudiced by it because we anticipated it and our expert has it. Well, what expert? Because we didn't have one. Like it reflects on him personally. And at one point, the court even says, listen, I don't want anybody asking for a mistrial because of late discovery turned over. Tell me what you need. Is it time? Is it money? What is it? So I can see if I can get it for you. He did not want to admit in open court or in front of people that we were out of money. He would only say limited resources. But you go from tapped out to our, our expert has it. At this point, you know, my eyes are just blazing over and I'm looking at him and he's going, I know what I'm doing. I know what I'm doing. So they had to, they ran out of money essentially and they changed, Joe changed the retainer agreement uh, with Melanie and I guess it, the retainer agreement 
the new one, said that Joe would incur the cost for the duration of the trial, and then Melanie would pay him back at a later date. So Melanie's argument then is that, well, if he's he's absorbing all the cost now, he's not going to pay for experts. Yeah. And this is her argument or her philosophy that, you know, why would he pay for it? It's all coming out of his pocket. So yep. he's not going to pay for them. So they're in front of the judge at one point and there is, you know, the state, uh, sorry, the state gets obviously their, their cases funded by... Um, by the government, by the state. and But the defense also can request funding. Defendants can request funding as well. So there's an opportunity that the judge presents, you know, if you need more experts, if you need yeah. more witnesses, if you need, let us know, what do you need? And I guess Melanie said, Joe was like, we have Why? limited- Is it an ego thing, you think? Or pride? I mean- um, I really, so Melanie just said it there. She thought, that he did not want to stand up in open court and say, we're, yeah. we're out of money, we're out of, we, we have nothing. You know, she she thought he didn't, it was an ego thing. It doesn't make sense to me because this is a guy who loves to win. Was Did he just think the prosecution's case was so weak that he could just sort of, I don't want to say ride along and, you know, but sort of just do the bare minimum? I think he thought that they did a very strong job at poking holes in the case okay. in the upfront. Because um, I, I do believe he wanted to win. Oh, yeah, for sure. I mean, I don't think he, he went into lose. And he was this confident his, that they were going to, it sounds like. This is his reputation. You know, I, I'm I'm certain he wanted to win, but he didn't ask for, he didn't get all the tools that he could have. I think that he, I do think that he believed that they had done a very good job in poking holes in the other witnesses and the state's witnesses. Yeah. And one of the witnesses he called is Marcy Polk. I think that's how you pronounce it, Polk. Um, and that was Bill's ex-wife. They did interview Marcy at one point. Do you know point. how long they were married for, by any chance? Yeah, they were married for about six or seven years. They were so young. How They must have gotten married pretty young then. Well, remember, Bill was older than Melanie, too, so... That's true. Bill was 39. And they'd been married. They'd been together for like six years, five years at the well, time. They'd been married for five years, but together for longer than that. Okay. They were together since Bill was about twenty-eight, if I recall. Oh, okay. So, so he was ma- he was married. Yeah, they were married in his young, early twenties. For okay, right. I think they got married. He and Marcy when he had just gotten out of the the navy, and so they wanted to call Marcy to basically show how the relationship with Marcy and Bill dissolved. So how did, you know, the end come about? What were the arguments like? To to try to prove that Bill might have just left on his own accord? To to show how Bill might, yeah, exactly. How Bill might have left because there might have been a similar pattern. Let's hear what Marcy had to say or what she would have had to say. Who better to know than the woman who spent like 10 years with him? This is Bill's ex-wife. The purpose would have been to illustrate the fact that he had left her and ended their marriage much in the same way he had left me at that point, that they had had an argument, that he had left, that she didn't know where he was, alive or dead, for, you know, X amount of time, and then he came back, and then he wanted a divorce. But essentially, they wanted to illustrate that this was, this is what he does, that I would have every reason to think, yeah, he'll be gone for a couple of weeks, he'll be back, and not think it's particularly strange. Let's also bear in mind that the prosecutor is beating to death the fact that I didn't file a missing persons report. Well, guess what? Neither did his sister. I didn't file one on the advice of of divorce counsel. 
She claimed that she did not because of the plates on the car and our driver's licenses being out of state and that she didn't want to get him in trouble. If you're that concerned, none of that shit matters. For me, I'm not that concerned because, again, until he doesn't show back up at work, then I become concerned. Some point after his death, my divorce papers became public for like a hot second. And the media had gotten a hold of them and contacted her and presented her with them and asked her to, to look them up. And she said, this could be my marriage except for the kids. Yeah, she basically said this could, except for the kids because they had no children, this could be my marriage. And the judge, the argument was that it was too far removed temporally. It was too long between the time he left his first wife and when he allegedly left me. I get that it's, there's a timeline going on here, but if this is how he leaves all his wives, then it is a pattern. That would have been. Yeah, so I have two things. The main thing I want to bring up here, if I remember correctly, Bill and Melanie were having an affair when he was still with Marcy. Yes. And but, she's still willing to testify on her behalf. Not on her behalf, but pretty much for the defense. That's that's kind of, that's. I think that says something. Because she definitely doesn't like Melanie. It says that she's credible is what it says. Right? I think so. I think it says she's credible. Because I would imagine, you know, she probably hates Melanie. <laughs> you know, <laughs> if you recall, they, they had met, remember Marcy came and oh, said yeah. that like, they had is, some sort of camaraderie about Bill being... <laughs> camaraderie but I don't think that I have no idea right we don't yeah. know I did send um, a request I reached out to her via social media to Marcy I haven't heard back from her she you know if you're listening and Marcy you, call, call. <laughs> another one right and I didn't want to be too invasive either uh, so if you're listening and you want to talk that's that would be great we are happy to hear from you but I think that she you know I don't know that she blamed Melanie so much as she blamed Bill that's great um, I think that's the right way to be Oh, I agree, mm -hmm. right? It wasn't Melanie's responsibility. Yeah. I also know that, I don't know how correct it would be to say affair during their relationship. So as I recall the timeline, they were married, but he was dating someone after Marcy. Remember Kathy? It was oh, the yeah. one that Melanie baked the cake for and they were friends. So actually... Did they talk to Kathy at all, I wonder? They, I don't or know. they probably weren't together that long. To I don't know. I don't know that she had any relevance. So I'm not sure if they did or did not talk to her. But I will say that. So he was with her and then and then there was Melanie. And obviously, from what Marcy had told Melanie, he was still in contact with Marcy and still trying to yeah. woo her back. So there was some involvement. But I believe they were separated for a while. The other thing is... She mentioned she mentions that um, Bill left for X amount of time. Yeah. Now, are we talking he would leave for hours or days? That's pretty relevant. Days. Days. Okay. Yeah, it was days. And is there anyone saying um, that he was abusive to them, whether it be Marcy or Kathy or is anyone else? Okay, so here's what Marcy said. I have a report that I found. It's um, it's a let's see, an interview that was conducted with one of the investigators, mm -hmm. and I think it was submitted into evidence because it has a bait stamp on it. It's not a very long interview, so I'll just read you a brief brief portion. Okay. Marcy is the victim's first wife. They were married for eight years and divorced in 1994. When the victim was in the Navy, they were living in Virginia Beach. She described the victim as having a big mouth, controlling, and a temper. She further described the victim as being verbally abusive. However, the victim did put a pillow over her face one time during an argument. Okay, so that's abuse. 
Okay. That's what she has to say about it. Yeah. Okay. I mean, she's also not, you know, she didn't describe him in a nice light. She she actually described him the same way Melanie described him. Yeah. I would also be interested to talk to her a little bit about Bill's relationships while they were in Virginia Beach. Is there anyone that he pissed off? Or, right? Because again, his body was found in, Virginia, in that area. Right. Yeah. Maybe there's another connection that we're missing here. Yeah. I would love it if someone, <laughs> if you can call us and let us know. Um, That's actually a great point, Amy. Let's write that one down. Again. Right? No, it's Call yeah. us. No. She's, yeah. Are there any other connections? Are we missing a Virginia connection? And did yeah, the police or, mix like, one? like rack your brain. Was there anything like unusual about any of his relationships that he piss people off? Like, what was his relationship like with the Rices? Who knows? Just... Yeah, no, I love it. I think it's great. Okay. And I think it's actually worth asking. So again, well, Amy, Marcy, <laughs> call us. <laughs> um, so I think this is a huge loss for the defense, though, I have to say. If Marcy could have... So she did testify, right? She testified a little bit, but what she could have said was that, wow, Bill and I got in a fight. He... um he took money out of our bank accounts and disappeared. And I didn't know where he was for days. Yeah, This would have been, I mean, this lends credence to Melanie's story that, yeah, he he got mad. He walks out. He takes money. This would have been huge. This also illustrates the amount of discretion that judges have and how much power they have over what goes on during trial. So much power. Right? Because I think you're right. This could have been another judge. This could have been another decision, right? Yep. I mean, he he referenced the temporal order or the temporal timing. So too much time was involved. Too much time, it was in between. Is that even a thing? What is, I'm also thinking like on the prosecution side, her friend, Melanie's friend, what's his name? Um, not the one she was having the affair with. But Jim the one Finn. That, didn't he talk about stuff about like their relationship back way back when? Did he not? Whose relationship? Um, him and Melanie, like something during nursing. I don't know. I just feel like there there were some points in the prosecution that they definitely talked about things that weren't temporally relevant or whatever. <laughs> oh, <laughs> whatever. I see what you're saying. That were you so know what I mean? far removed. That yeah, because so if you're going to say that, then you have to, you know, um, I can't think of an example good right for the now. Goose is but good for the gander? Is that what yeah, you mean? Yeah, like, exactly. Yeah, I don't know. He, I mean, he definitely did. And it might have, maybe there was another reason, but I, I don't know about the ordering or too far removed. I have no idea if that's really a thing. All I know is it's what the judge said. And because of that, Marcy wasn't And it's allowed. not even that long ago. It's not like 30 years ago. You know, I don't think it's that far removed. No, I don't think it's that far removed either. It would have established a pattern, but I guess the prosecution argued it's too far removed to establish a pattern. Like a pattern has to have some I type guess, of but timing. Again, just shows, you know, the subjectivity involved that every step of the way in these cases. Discretion, you're absolutely right. Like a great example here. So, okay, so Marcy does not get to say the, you know, the way in which Bill left her, which would have been helpful. Another witness that Melanie wishes they would have called is the building maintenance supervisor. Okay, so the building maintenance supervisor provided a sworn affidavit about the pink color on Bill and Melanie's walls and that it had to be returned to its original color for Melanie to get her $3,000 security back. Why is this important? I was just going to say, the relevance, yeah. <laughs> well, Amy, if you recalled our uh, huge discussion yes. about the apartment and all the cleaning and yep. the fact that it smelled like bleach, remember they had a witness that said, yes, this place smelled like bleach and the walls are painted white and everything looks like, you know, clean. And Melanie would say, well, we did clean it. My mother helped me. Celine helped me. Brad helped me. We cleaned it. And I painted the walls because I wanted to get my $3,000 security back. And she says, look, you don't have to take my word for it. Ask yeah. the building maintenance. It's yeah. in my lease. There's a maintenance supervisor. He provided the affidavit. So she thinks this was- Was that a brought up during trial? 
No, it wasn't. So this is her complaint that that would have been another witness. At least that would have supported, at least could have thrown a little bit of light onto she cleaned, she cleaned the place Let so well. Let me ask you, do you know if Luminol would be able to pick up blood if it was painted over? Yeah, it would. It would. Yeah. But okay, the, so. No, but the argument is that the average person wouldn't know that, you know. Got it. Like she still, but, would, she but, still would have done that because she still would have thought it. But, but there's no blood in it. That, it nothing. doesn't find any. So it's not like the paint could have covered this crazy blood splatter that she got on the walls. The paint, luminol would still come up, but yeah. um, Patty's argument or the prosecution's argument again was that there was no blood because Melanie did such a great job cleaning. And Melanie's argument is, I clean the house like a normal person would clean when they're moving out who wants to get the security back. Yeah. So would the witness have helped? Probably. I don't know. It couldn't that, have hurt. It couldn't have hurt. I don't. I wouldn't say this is a critical witness. I think Don Zhu might have been. A- I do think, though, um, all these little witnesses that may or may not have been critical or what they said may or may not have been critical, at least could have established reasonable doubt in the eyes of the jury. And this is what Melanie said when I asked her, like, what do you think, you know, what's the biggest, what was the biggest miss? And she said, it's not that there's one huge miss. It's that all of these small things, when you add them up together, might have changed the entire the trajectory. problem is none are strong enough and none are strong enough to be grounds for an appeal. Right? That's the problem. Taking together, they create some sort of reasonable doubt, but by themselves, they're not strong enough for, you know, the post-conviction relief. Sorry, Amy, you're just going to have to wait till we actually get to the appeal before I actually really discuss all of this. Don't don't get too excited early, but (laughs) I mean, there are are various problems, but yeah. So, and and again, um, when we do get to the appeal, what you will hear from a legal expert we consulted is, you know, that all of this comes down to trial strategy, right? So a lawyer can say, I did call this witness trial strategy. I didn't. Trial strategy. Why? It's all, it can, most of these decisions can be attributed to trial strategy. Okay. So, Lack of the building maintenance supervisor. The next witness Joe did call. Um, his name is George Lowry. Now, I think th- when I say critical witness, I'm going to like fly- raise the flag here. Alert, alert, critical witness. George Lowry was a former coworker of Bill's. And George Lowry was going to describe a conversation that he had with Bill about a gun. You know, Melanie said, Bill wanted me to get this gun. She has no proof of this. Well, George Lowry, she said, would have been able to testify that actually she was telling the truth, that Bill did want a gun. So let's let's hear what George would have had to say. I, I can already tell you, he didn't get to say everything. I was just going to say, no. would have implies yes. that. He, he didn't. didn't get to okay. say everything, but what would he have said? When my team got a hold of the contact information in Bill's Blackberry, they started making calls to people and they find this guy. He said, well, you know, I had a conversation with Bill about this. The fact that he had a, a record, he couldn't get this gun and he really, really wanted one. He portrayed it to this gentleman as being in the context of he wanted to protect his property. The fact that we'd been robbed of our headlights five times. I don't know this guy from a can of paint and he was willing to get up there and and say all this and he was prevented from, all he was allowed to testify to was that he had a conversation with Bill about the purchase of a gun, period. Yeah, exactly. It's like everybody's like sitting there like, dude, and go on. If this dude were allowed to get up there and say, yeah, you know, Bill talked to me about this, the fact that he couldn't buy a gun, he wanted one, he was, he was after his wife to, to get him one. If this dude could have gotten up there and said all that, that would have been huge. The prosecution argued against the inclusion of that testimony. Then, in their closing argument, 
argued that the very absence of that same testimony was dispositive of the fact that it was basically bullshit. So you argued to keep it out. The judge said, okay, we'll keep it out. And then you go in front of a jury and you say, well, because this isn't here, clearly she's lying and my own team doesn't stand up and object. What? <laughs> I knew. I was watching you shake your head that, over there. I just, can you, can you explain, explain that? Yeah, this yeah. one I can explain pretty well. Okay. okay. So what happened was George Lowry wanted to testify exactly to what Melanie just said, that he had had a conversation a few months before Bill disappeared with Bill, in which Bill said, yeah, I want to get a gun. Our headlights keep getting stolen. Which, which we'll we can, talk about yeah. after, oh, please. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, for safety purposes, but I can't get one. Um, you know, I have a record and I'm not able to get one. So, uh, I'm, you know, I, wa- I want my wife to get one for me, basically. Okay, that's that's what Melanie said the whole time, right? Yeah. That Bill couldn't get a, a gun. And so here's someone who will get on the stand. By the way, she says it. I don't know him from a can of paint. She yeah. has no idea who this guy is. But he's like, well, this is what happened. So I'm going to tell, you know, the prosecution argues adamantly hearsay. They argue the hearsay rule. So the state so the state objected and the court limited the Can scope. Can you explain the hearsay yes. rule? Yes. So hearsay is anything a witness did not observe directly and has no personal knowledge of. But, but he observed, I mean, he heard it directly. It's, it, he, so that's, why a, is that's it? a rumor. That's hearsay. He didn't witness it with his own eyes. If I uh, tell you something and then you repeat it, that's hearsay. That's hearsay. It's like a so rumor. If it's he like had, this is a silly question, but if he had the conversation in person, it's still it means he would have had to like how would that ever not be hearsay then? It could there's no way. No, yeah, of course. That makes no sense though. That people testify all the time about conversations they have with people. Okay, and you know why? Because there are a number of hearsay exceptions. Okay. Like a hundred of them. And this isn't one of them. It's not one of them. And I, I do have probably a little bit more on that later, a little like more to get technical when we get down to the actual um, you know, the appeals. But so the what defense exactly? did not prevail in their arguments about they did not prevail on the hearsay exception. So all the jury heard was this. Bill and I once had a conversation about a gun. <laughs> What's the point even putting him up there then? Like, what's the point? And Melanie said it in her. She, okay, so everyone goes, and then? Or, okay, we had a conversation. So what? Like, that was it. And then in her closing, again, and we'll get to the closing, Patty argues uh, that you didn't hear anyone talk about the fact that Bill wanted a gun or that he ever... That's a little slimy. I agree. So I agree. I agree. And I did. I interviewed an expert about it. We'll totally get to it. But I don't, regardless if it's breaching a legal barrier, I don't like that either. I'm not comfortable with that. And again, this is just another little thing by itself. It's not huge. I, but I disagree. I think it's huge. You think this is I think bigger this is, than some of the other ones? Like I Don do. or letting Marcy talk about sort of patterns. I mean, I think they're all... I yeah. think they're, I, I do say, I think they're all important, but I think this one is... Well, it shows that Melanie's not a liar. It shows it that... It shows that Bill wanted a gun. One of the big points was that Melanie went out and bought a gun two days before, right? If someone could have gotten up and said, well, yeah, but but Bill wanted a gun and actually asked her exactly what she said. Yeah. I think this, I think this is like I a I can't wait very, to talk about the appeal. I hope this comes up there, but oh, you'll this let is coming me out. Okay, yeah, no, this, this is an appeal issue. And and here's, there are hearsay exceptions. Some of them are easier than others. I think this mu- would have been a hearsay exception. He's, he's deceased. So normally they would say, well, if someone talked about something, if someone said something, they can testify to it themselves, right? Well, Bill couldn't testify to this exactly. clearly because he's the victim here. Uh, but this did not prevail in a hearsay exception. So all they heard again, the jury just heard, yep, we talked about a gun one time. It's ridiculous. I mean, 
Okay, the elephant in the room here, the headlights. The so first headlights. Of all, I mean, why does he need a gun? Clearly, there's something going on in his life that is making him feel like he needs a gun. Yeah. Well, you could argue that, what yeah. What kind of car did they have that the headlights yeah, were Nissan so— Nissan Maxima. Okay, so maybe those parts are sell—you know, they sell on the black market. Well, right. you know, like I know right. Civics get parts still on a lot, but someone's fucking with him. Right? <laughs> How do so, you steal? Remember, we discussed this in the beginning um, that he was, he had his, his headlights were getting stolen. Melanie yeah. had said this. And I asked her, like, how many times did they get stolen? She said, I know five, but I think it was six or seven. And I went, five, six, seven times? Do you know if it's from their house or from work? So what she said was that he worked in the not so great area of Newark. And this was what, I guess, this is hearsay because yeah. it's what he told her, but my headlights keep getting stolen. And that's why, one of the reasons why I want to have a gun but what, are you going to shoot someone if you see them stealing your headlights? I mean, what? I don't. Why would that make someone feel unsafe? If someone's stealing my headlights, I would be pissed off. And maybe I would be a little creeped out that someone was like touching my stuff. But I don't think I would feel the need to be defending myself with a gun. And maybe there is an argument that, you know, maybe something happened late at night. And if he had a gun, he felt like he could catch someone in the act. I yeah. really don't know. Okay. And I think there were, was he working nights? Like, I'm wondering, like, it was his headlights. If he's not working nights, his headlights are just being stolen in pure daylight. I you know. know? Like, it's so just So he straight. was not normally working nights. That's not his normal work schedule. But he did have somewhat of abnormal work schedules. He did site visits at other times. I, I don't know what his... I don't actually know his full schedule because it was a little bit... It wasn't maybe the quite so normal one. But I think it's odd that someone's headlights were stolen that many times. And I actually remember Melanie telling me about it. And I thought it was weird. And then I remember... Do you remember when we met with Linda and Mike? Mm-hmm. Mike said, and he actually said, Mike Caparero, and whose headlights get stolen that many times? And I remember thinking, yeah, that is a weird thing. I did look it up though. I So I looked it up because I'm like, this is an odd thing. And are people, I'm like, are people even stealing headlights at all? Or is this, you know, completely fictional? So I looked it up and there was some like information about, you know, at a certain point, there were certain models of cars and Nissan was one of them. Nissan, Toyota, Honda. Because the parts were easily resold, right? Exactly. So there was a thing where headlights were getting stolen, but I can't see the same car that many times. I have a lot of questions around that. I don't know. Okay. So he definitely filed a claim on his taxes, I guess, or or it came up on his taxes for some of the headlights being stolen. And I think it was, it totaled something around $6,000 in headlights. What? I don't even know what headlights cost. <laughs> Obviously, they cost a lot of money though, $6,000. So, okay. So regardless, the, um, the jury doesn't get to hear that Bill ever talked about this. And I think... There was, or we could all accept that George Lowry, an uninterested party who has no, you know, no dog in this fight. Yeah. He was just going to recount a conversation he once had. So this is very credible testimony. Anyone else, um, can anyone else, I mean, off the record, you know, I know it didn't come up in trial, but have you heard of anyone else talking about, like, whether it be his sisters or anyone else that can vouch for the fact that he wanted a gun or is this the only person, him and Melanie, this guy, George and Melanie, the only two? These are the only two. Yeah, okay. Yeah, this is it. Mm -hmm. I read, I've gone through transcripts, uh, not transcripts, sorry, I've gone through the interviews that his sisters gave and some of that will come in later, but I haven't seen any discussion at all about a gun other than these two witnesses. But I don't also know that that's the kind of thing that you would tell everybody. Yeah. Um, Maybe your family, but I'm not Mm -hmm. sure. Okay, so missed critical testimony here. Somebody who was not actually, somebody who did not testify for Melanie, but who wound up kind of, I guess, helping Melanie. A prosecution witness, you mean? Mm-hmm. There was a prosecution witness. We had Wendy Gunther, and she was the state's pathologist. Um, I contacted her, so she did the autopsy, and she went through, um, you know, the cause of death and everything, and she was up on the stand. 
And I called her and she actually gave me a statement that I could read. Well, let me see. I spoke to her, first of all, on June 22nd, 2018. She explained that she can't discuss the autopsy report with me because she's bound by privacy laws. She said she could answer specific questions about the trial testimony if we have them. So what I asked her to address was her comment in the testimony. She said that Bill's legs looked fresh. Um, This comment... may have actually had the prosecution change their theory about Bill's death and and the timing. So Dr. Gunther said that she could not pinpoint a time of death, and while Bill's legs looked fresh, it might be that they were frozen. I asked her, would there be signs of freezing on a person's body, such as changes to the skin cell? And she said no. She said that she would not be able to tell if this was the case because once a person's body parts are thawed, there aren't any signs of freezing. She also said that the weather conditions could contribute to the rate of decomposition, either speeding it up or slowing it down. So this happened in April. So the weather, it would not have been hot and the water would have been cold as well. So. This was interesting. Dr. Gunther testifies. Um, she's a state's witness and and she's talking about, you know, the autopsy. He was shot. And we had discussed, by the way, the, the shots, uh, how many bullets there were. So the state recovered two bullets. But it looks like if you read, I read this report, James and I read it like several times. It looks like there were actually four shots. That were found in the suitcases with the body? No, that, I mean, no. I'm sorry. There was two bullets found in the suitcase with the body. There were two bullets, no, two bullets found in his body. Oh, they were in his body. But it <laughs> looks like there were two other entrance and exit wounds. So I think he was actually shot four times. But those bullets were not. They weren't recovered. Okay. So those bullets were not recovered. So two recovered. So when I said, you know, there was two or three shots, it looks actually like four shots with two bullets recovered. Interesting. I think it's interesting. Where did those other two bullets go? So it's another argument when we talk about the apartment. Yeah. If they exited him, right, in the apartment, wouldn't there be, I don't know, to At least floor? fragments or something, right? Like, like- there would, if it exited his body, it's got to go somewhere. It's got to hit something, right? Um, the thing that she she provided, the thing that the defense kind of capitalized on was this idea of the fresh legs. So if you recall, there were three suitcases that were found. And in the one suitcase with Bill's torso, um, not to be too graphic, but there was a heavy rate of decomposition. And that was probably because uh, that suitcase was also directly in the sun and it washed up kind of on uh, on an island and it was, it was more directly exposed to sun. And... These, um, the suitcase that was contained his legs that she's talking about where the legs look fresh was in the water. But the defense said, whoa, whoa, whoa. If the legs look fresh, um, isn't it actually possible then that he was alive, you know, for this whole week? Maybe what he does was- fresh mean? So that's the thing. They looked fresh. She actually said they looked like, um, I looked in the transcript and I don't want to say it, it. this is exactly what she said, but it was something to the effect of they look like someone who was who had just recently died, like yesterday, like someone in the hospital. So the defense thinks, okay, the prosecution has laid out that he's been murdered, you know, about six or seven days before. And then eventually his body was driven out here. But the, the medical examiner is saying, but we have a pair of legs that look like they just, they're fresh. So couldn't that actually disrupt this timeline? Yeah. Couldn't Bill have been alive this whole damn time? And now, or couldn't, you know, couldn't he been alive this whole time? And now um, the, the, the state's timeline is, or is kind of thrown off by this. So this was, this was in, in bit, 
uh, in part, this was helpful for the defense. So let me ask you, there was a third suitcase, though. Were the parts in that suitcase, quote unquote, fresh? No. So how does that make any sense? That I understand the one that was found washed ashore was more decomposed because it may have been in the sun. Right. But wouldn't you expect the third suitcase, which not the one with the legs, but wouldn't the third one be Well, the third one had, you know, from the pelvis to like the top part of the legs. Okay. Um, I I don't recall that there was heavy decomposition. That was decomposed. Uh Uh-huh. I don't think it was as extreme as the torso and I don't think it was as fresh as, I think it was somewhere in between. So, I mean, what happens is that, and Dr. Gunther said it, you know, the the temperature, um, the exposure, gotcha. the elements. But the defense says, or the timeline is wrong. Yeah, that's interesting. And I will say this, what happened was um, from the from the opening to the closing, the prosecution altered their theory, their possible theories and said that, well, maybe it wasn't that Melanie killed him right away. Maybe she was using chloral hydrate to keep him sedated for a couple of days. Where, in Flamingo? Uh, well, it's in the house, in the, her house. Like maybe we had the, maybe we had the timeline wrong or or there was an alternate explanation. What was the other one? Um, that, oh, oh, that it was, refer- that she refrigerated his body parts. Oh God. I thought that Did was- Did they have an industrial size refrigerator or a freezer? I mean, they had a freezer, but- But you can't, that wouldn't fit. The contents of a suitcase would not fit in a freezer. I, I don't think so. Um, did all of this come out on cross-examination? This all, uh, so yes. As so far as like this was this fresh. Some of this came out okay. on, yeah. Th- no, that was on direct. That was when the state, oh, when the state- But it works against the state. They didn't know. Oh. They, <laughs> uh, they obviously did not <laughs> know. <laughs> okay. They obviously didn't know she was going to say that. And I will say the state tried to clarify that and get the explanation. They got these alternative reasons. Why might the legs look, you know, fresh? So, but it, it doesn't, it, it didn't help them. And it also forced the state to have to reconsider their timeline and provide alternative explanations. Why did the legs look fresh? Maybe it was the water, but maybe it was also that you refrigerated him. Yeah. I don't know about this whole idea though that, um, and Dr. Gunther has a great reputation, I'm sure. And and she's, you know, she's done a lot, a great number of autopsies, but I don't know about this idea that there's no signs of changes to skin cells from freezing and thawing. Did you talk to any other um, doctors about that question? So in fact, we have an interview with um, Jim Barone, who is, or the former head of surgery at Stanford. And we asked him about the skin cell issue. Well, we asked him about a couple of things. So we asked him about this issue of skin cells. Can you tell if they're frozen and it's been dethawed? Would would there be changes um, in the skin? And... He, he said this is not an area that he would be, you know, this is not his expertise. What he would, and he's not a pathologist, and he made that very clear, but he did say that he thought there would be obvious changes. Okay, so fine. Um, there are a couple other areas, though, in which he really is uh, a specialist, and one of them also relates to the skin issue, you know, the dermis. Um, they talked a lot, the prosecution talked a lot and made this big deal of the human sawdust that they found, remember? Mm-hmm. So I also asked Dr. Barone, because I was just curious, you know, I had looked it up at the time, and I'm like, is human sawdust a thing? And he said, absolutely not. I've never <laughs> heard of this ever. The only where, you know, the only place this comes up is in this case. And he also was talking, so he looked at the information and he does know enough about skin cells um, in this regard. And he actually said that, you know, he was he was surprised that they made such a big deal out of, you know, the, the human sawdust or the skin cells. So let me ask you, um, Dr. Barone has done amputations in the past. Oh, That's yeah. how he is, yeah. knows so much about 
the skin cells. Oh, well, he's head of, he was head of the residency program for, um, or surgical residency. Mm-hmm. Again, surgeries, amputations. Gotcha. Um, he's also, by the way, uh, testified at criminal and civil trials. He's, he would pass, you know, whether it's the Daubert or the Fry standard, he's an expert witness and he can speak to skin, certainly layers of skin. Oh, you mean someone Melanie's defense should have called? Yes. <laughs> I think that's exactly right. I think okay. this is someone who would have been helpful to rebut some of this. Um, so this is what he actually said uh, about the dermis found in the car. Well, I know that one of the areas of contention in this case was that dermis was supposedly seen on the uh, slides of the minuscule droppings that were vacuumed from the floor of the uh, decedent's car. And there was a lot of debate in the, the trial testimony that you know, was it connective tissue or not? And I, I, I basically say, you know, to myself, I, I don't know why they're arguing about this. Who cares? If it's dermis, it's dermis. The issue about the dermis was that it wasn't just uh, epithelial cells that naturally fall off the skin uh, in a, a pattern that occurs over a couple of weeks where you kind of replenish all your skin cells. It's not obvious, but they do shed. And dermal cells, which are below the epithelium of the skin, the, the outer layer of skin, they don't shed because they, they don't have contact with the, with the surface. So if you found dermis in a specimen, it, it suggests that there was a deeper cut or injury or whatever to allow the dermal cells to escape. I, you know, again, I don't know whether it's calling them connective tissue or not. Dermis contains connective tissue, but my definition of dermis just doesn't, I don't, I don't know that it's, I would call dermis connective tissue. He thought the prosecution was making a big deal of, you know, they kept saying connective tissue, connective tissue, and he's saying it's dermis. Uh, You know, dermis is dermis. And okay, so it got through the above layer. Um, But he adds this. The way they described these slides, there really wasn't much tissue. So I was curious to know how they would have established the the tissue as the uh, decedent. Not to mention the fact that would it not be rather obvious that you would find shed cells on the floor of his car since it was in fact his car. It didn't shock me that he that they found some. I'm, I'm kind of surprised they didn't find that many cells, to be honest with you, because you figure he uses his car all the time, probably has shed cells all over the place. So they're saying, first of all, they made it a big deal. They're trying to call it connective tissue, like yeah. it's deep, you know, it's it's like blood and gore. Yeah. He's saying it's not really that. And, and the second point he's saying is uh, there was so few. They put them on slides and they made it seem like a lot. He said, but honestly, they found so little that nobody should be shocked that there were a few tiny skin cells found in someone's own car. And he said he would have expected to see more, if anything. if anything. So, you know, what he thought was, this is like kind of something they made a big deal out of. That is no big deal. And I have to agree. Well, that sounds like a trial strategy. Of course it is. The (laughs) announcement, again, of human sawdust. We found this. It sounds horrible, right? It's just sensational. And it's it's not a real thing. And what he's saying is, okay, so in Bill's car, some of Bill's skilled skin cells. (laughs) In Bill's car, some of... Bill skin cells were there. <laughs> yes. Wow, I don't know why I can't say that, but that's fine. Just Tongue me twister. being human, yeah. yeah. Um, so actually, Dr. Byrne was helpful, though, because he also addresses a couple other issues where I think uh, Melly's defense... Please tell me he talks about the cutting of the body. Okay, so yeah. So um, I asked him a couple things. First of all, I said, like, how difficult is it to saw through bone, right? Because she had a saw through bone. 
So let's hear what in Dr. In several Barone. areas, right? Not just... Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, in several areas. Um, so let's hear what Dr. Barone had to say about that. Yes, I, I've done many amputations in my career, and I can tell you it's not easy to cut through bone. The femur is the longest and strongest bone in the body, and it is very hard to cut. And the tibia is not far behind, but both of these bones are weight-bearing bones. They're very strong and thick and difficult to cut through. Again, using a power saw makes it easier, but still, you could cut across the knee joint with just a knife, a scalpel. You wouldn't need any kind of saw. I just, I don't why anyone would do it the other way. Just, I, I don't understand that. So actually, you know, you could make the argument if she was a nurse and really knew how to do it, she probably wouldn't have done that one leg that way. Somebody with anatomical knowledge would say, I'm going to go through the joint because I know I'm not going to run into any bones. The kneecap is actually in front of the joint. I shouldn't be completely dismissing the fact there's bones, but it's very easy to get around that because the kneecap is held in place by tendons. And you can just cut the tendon above or below the kneecap and get into the joint. It would be much easier to cut. But I don't understand why you would choose to go through the femur and the tibia. And uh, that is a real uh, question. I don't know why no one brought that up. And I'm, I think if you want to introduce some confusion, you could say, if you're saying that this nurse is anatomically uh, knowledgeable and knows how to cut a patient or a person up, then why would you do it the way she did it? It just doesn't make any sense. You know, maybe the accomplice did one leg while she did the other leg. And I don't know. You tell me. It doesn't make sense. <laughs> so I had asked, um, I asked Dr. Barone, how, how hard would it be to cut through bone? And have you done it? Have you performed amputations? And that's where he sort of said, yes, I've done it. And here's, here's the reality of the situation. I find it very interesting that the prosecution used her profession as something to incriminate her. Yes, I think so. But he's actually saying the exact opposite. If she did have any anatomical knowledge, which she did because she was a nurse, then she would have never cut the body the way that body was cut. So it's exactly the opposite of what the prosecution was saying. Couldn't agree more. Exactly. And he was talking, I think specifically on that one, he was talking about the legs Mm -hmm. and he was kind of saying, what a shoddy job. Like nobody, you know, if she had any knowledge, you're exactly right. There's no... And I know he was just kidding around. He said, oh, maybe the accomplice did one leg and she did the other, but then that means one leg would have been done well. Right? (laughs) Yeah. Seriously. Well, (laughs) (laughs) both weren't done. No, that's a good point. Sorry, not to make light of it. No, but but it's it's true. But I I think what what he says very clearly dispels this idea that someone... So did the prosecution have an expert witness who talked about the cutting of the body? No, they had a medical examiner who talked about how the body body was how the body was cut and, you know, sort of the ragged edges. And why wouldn't the defense have called somebody... Like Mr. Barone. Uh, that's weird. that's what the question is here. After I spoke with him, you know, I interviewed him for a little while. And by the way, he doesn't have a dog in this fight. This is an independent expert, you know, no ties to the case. And I thought, this was pretty easy to come by, this information that seems... Almost easier than the suitcase test. Right. And it also seems great. He has a great background and expertise, but it also seems like kind of common sense. Yep. So, you know, he's talking about cutting through bone. I also asked him, you know, what... The bill was cut across the torso. Um, what's this? You know, what is this? Is this a mess? Could Melanie have done this? You know, what is your opinion about Again, this? Again, I'm not a forensic pathologist or forensic anything, but my understanding of this is that it is 
absolutely impossible to get rid of every trace of blood and human tissue in a drain. There are going to be little places where stuff collects, and you can run the water all day, and it's just not going to get everything out of there. So that they did not find a trace of this in her house, it couldn't have taken place in the house. I don't know how they could have done it, but it wasn't there. Uh, whoever did it. Um, I just want to point out that he's saying his understanding, because he talks about how he's not a forensic pathologist, but his training, I think it could be more than his quote unquote understanding. You know, it is clear that he knows, you know, I understand why he's hesitant because that's not his area of expertise, but he is extremely credible. And I do want to point out again that he said, even if you ran the water all day, they checked her water bill, did they not? Right. Her water usage. Right. And so there was no evidence that she even tried to run the water all day, right? So right. even if she had. So even more specifically, you know, I yeah, I had asked him, um, what would this be like? So even more specifically, he talks about what's happened when he's done that, when he's used a saw before. If, if a saw was used, believe me, I've used saw power saws. And the biggest problem you have is that it sprays droplets of tissue all over the place while you're doing it because it's, it's done with vibration as well as oscillation. And if it's a carpenter's kind of saw, it's going to be rotating. And just imagine it's going to be kicking up. I was going to use the term human sawdust, but that's not the right term. <laughs> but it's going to kick out droplets and uh, pieces of tissue, and they're going to be all over the place, including all over the person doing it. So it, that's another big problem for me. Is the, the part cutting across the abdomen is extremely uh, hard to imagine how that was done. It, it would have been real messy, and, and, and it would require a lot of work to do. I think he adds a little bit more to this. That brings up another question, though. Of all the blood and gore that it would take to cut somebody into pieces, all they could find was, a, I wouldn't even call it a sliver of skin. It was one millimeter in diameter, which is, well, very small. Let's put it that way. And they couldn't even make many slides out of it because it was such a small piece of tissue. If, if you know, I, I just don't get that. Like, that's going to be enough to convince someone that the man was killed and then taken in his own car uh, in pieces? I don't know. Or even if he wasn't taken in pieces, then how did the dermis get exposed? Maybe he cut himself on a piece of paper one day. The dermis fell on the floor. I, I don't know. To me, the even if they were able to establish it was his skin, which you say they did, so fine. But how do, how do they know when it was deposited there? It could have been months old or it's the real puzzle to me. I don't, I don't understand how that convinced anyone. And how does it mean that his wife put the skin there? I, I don't get that whole thing. Um, I just want to also point out, he was saying, if you use a saw, things spray everywhere, right? I'm picturing a situation where it's on the ceiling. It's on, it's all, it's on the furniture. There was no evidence of any spray. Nothing. He's he's talking, yeah, he's talking about the mess. He actually specifically speaks about a saw circulating, yes. circulating, and you can picture it, right? When yeah. you're outside cutting even a piece of wood, all of oh it going God. everywhere, including in your face, on your, on your yeah. skin. You know what? I actually think um, uh, he talks about what happens when you cut an abdomen too, and that's yes. important here. So let, let me find that, or <laughs> let me play that. So I think you would need to plan ahead if you're going to cut across the intestines, you're going to get liquid and or solid material. 
you know, it ended up as feces in the colon. And you would have to be aware of the fact that you're going to make a bigger mess than even just blood, which I know the blood was drained. And by the way, that's another question. I'm not even sure how funeral directors drain the blood out of bodies. How would this person, this nurse know how to do that? I, I don't understand that. And was there any evidence that she did drain the butt? You know, because I believe the way funeral directors do it is, is they put uh, catheters in the femoral artery and vein and drain the blood out that way. But that would leave marks and to, you should be able to see that the blood was drained out that way. And I don't remember anybody saying that that is what happened. And, I, and you can't get all the blood out anyway. So it's going to make a pretty big mess and not leave a trace to me is a very interesting and difficult question to answer. You know, it's a job. It would be a big job. And to try to keep the mess under control while this was going on. And if you're using a power saw, it's going to spray droplets of gore all over the room that you're using. Okay. I think he's just underscoring for us here that it's incredibly difficult to cut through the abdomen. Not only that, you're not only cutting through the abdomen, but you're cutting through the back, the vertebrae. Mm -hmm. So this is so challenging. It's going to leave so much of a mess. It's such a big job. Wouldn't it also make a lot of noise? A ton of noise. And, and you, they shared a wall with another... Yes. And in the in the case, the prosecution said she probably muffled it with a towel, a how reciprocating saw. What, that, how do you muffle a, a reciprocating saw? Wouldn't it cut through I a towel? I have no idea. <laughs> you can't you muffle that. I... I mean, I think the, you know, I think Dr. Barone just established for me what I somewhat thought was not possible. But for me now, um, this is, you know, it's a wrap on this. This did not yeah. happen this way. Melanie did not do it this way. This did not happen in our house. Yeah. She did not saw through this bone. Yeah, this is I don't all... know if she killed him or not, but I feel very, very confident saying that she did not kill him in the manner that the prosecution says, nor the place. And the defense should have had someone like Dr. Barone. Yep. yep. They're suggesting that she used, did the prosecution say that they think she used an electric saw? Yes. Is there any proof that she ever purchased an electric saw? No. Is there any? No. They look, They went through receipts and everything like that. They couldn't find any evidence of her having a saw. What, was anyone missing a saw, like her father or her they went through lover all, or? They went through all of um, her stepfather's, uh, all of his receipts mm -hmm. and all of his tools. Remember, yeah. they confiscated all of his tools. I don't think he got it back. Actually, interestingly, but I, it really wound up being unrelated. Brad had a saw. Yeah, but think about it. So randomly at some stupid fair I had to go to with my kids, I had to like, they were like letting the kids try to like saw a piece of wood. And wood is much softer than bone, I would imagine. I don't know. I, w I don't know either, <laughs> but I would just assume. I don't know why. I have no basis on this, but you need to be really strong really to strong. saw through something. Yeah. It's not, sawing's right. not, it takes a lot of like elbow grease. Is that what they call it? When right. Like, yes. Yeah. Elbow grease. Totally. Melanie's doesn't look that strong to me, at least during trial pictures. I've never met her in person, but you have. She was tiny. She's, yeah. she's small. Yeah. And she was even tinier then. So I yeah, mean, that's she's, true. you know what I mean? Uh, Melanie also thought that Dr. Gunther made some mistakes in her assessment when she gave her report. She examined the body. I thought that some of her information is cause for concern in terms of the, the veracity of her assessment. You know, again, if you're getting rudimentary things like a huge scar isn't present, eye colors are all kind of call some stuff into question. On the other hand, she was also the one to say how, quote unquote, 
fresh the legs looked, and I do believe that other people, other witnesses echoed that later on, so she's not the only person saying it. Basically, she also said that she could not tell if his remains had been refrigerated. Um, that was something that I thought was an impeachable statement because you can see microscopic changes in cellular tissue when a body is kept either in refrigeration um, or on ice. But with that testimony, she basically wrecks the prosecution's timeline. Not that it mattered. Ultimately, I feel like nothing ended up helping me because I'm sitting here. Yeah, I asked her that. I always asked her that. Like, what helped? What didn't? And she said, well, maybe this helped. But in the end, I'm sitting here. So did she sort of know what the verdict was going to be? Do you ever talk to her about that? We're going to get to that very shortly. Okay. Um, I refuse to let you steal my thunder on that one. <laughs> I'm um, dying to know. Right. So she thought, you know, Dr. Gunther, she said that he, she made two critical mistakes. She said that Bill did have scars and Bill's eyes were not, the, Bill's eyes were like blue or, or did she say yeah. blue? I don't Lightish know. But gray. Yeah. Like they were very light. And she, yeah. so said, she said, well, so I had questions about, you know, her, the rest of her, if she couldn't get these two basics right. Yeah. But, uh, you know, that was just Melanie's opinion on that one. So you had mentioned, uh, I guess the last thing we want to discuss this episode, you had mentioned that Melanie is small, right? Mm-hmm. So... No evidence of her ever taking those steroids, right? That Bill had... I'm just... I mean, I guess you could say it's a relevant question. Didn't Bill take steroids? Melanie taking the steroids? I don't... I'm just trying to think, like, how she looks... She doesn't look strong. How would she be able to... She was tiny then too. For people who are going to go back, people are going to look at her pictures. I mean, really tiny. So not just talking about the sawing, which we will hear from Dr. Barone, but nobody tested the physical possibility that Melanie could carry Bill's body, even in suitcases, and lift these suitcases over the guardrail on the Chesapeake Bay Bridge, but we conducted our well, own can experiment. Can we talk about what the weight about the weight of the suitcase and about how much you would have needed to lift it? Yes. So um, the suitcases obviously were distributed into three different parts, and it was um, let's see, estimated that Bill weighed somewhere between 185 and 200 pounds. So when we looked, it was referenced somewhere too. Um, there was a, an approximate about this, um, the weight of the um, the biggest suitcase, which would be the the torso, um, which had to be somewhere between 80 and 90 pounds. We actually think it was, it could have been actually up to 100 pounds. I'm on, this might be a silly question, but I wonder, because they said that his blood was drained. How much does blood weigh? Any idea? I know bones would weigh the most, right? Yeah, I don't know how much the blood would weigh, to be honest. But there was still, it's, we can still expect that that, that heaviest part would have been approximately 80 pounds. At, the at pretty the much one the, containing his torso. Yeah. Um, so, uh, so she had to, you know, be able to lift 80 pounds. And uh, the guardrail on the Chesapeake Bay Bridge, I looked that up, um, took a little searching, is approximately 40 inches. Um, so, And how tall was she? Melanie was five foot three and she weighed 118 pounds. And that's what she said. I thought she looked smaller than that. Yeah. But according to her, she had a very good handle on I was okay. five three, 118 pounds. Again, you look at the pictures, you'll see she's she's tiny. So I had asked her at some point, did anyone ever kind of like test this out? Like that, that you could, could you even lift these? You know, is this even possible? And she said two things, no. Um, and I think the second thing was, this is probably one of the reasons why Patty had to establish that she had an accomplice, mm-hmm. was that someone was carrying these suitcases. And I thought, okay, but the prosecution also said that she took this trip one time, the, tri- the Delaware trip. She met her parents. She gave 
her parents, the kids, and then she went. She drove back and she drives straight to the city to meet Celine. Do you recall we talked about this timeline? So where's her accomplice? Was she drop him off on Uh, the parkway somewhere? I mean, (laughs) that's exactly the question. Even if, let's say, her father, which we don't believe that her father was her accomplice, but then did she drop him off? I'm assuming he probably had an alibi anyway. I would assuming that they probably looked into that, no? I I think so. Yeah. I mean, they try, They remember they went to the grand jury um, with this and mm-hmm. the grand jury failed to indict him. So yeah, I have because to imagine they had was, nothing on him. Yeah, it was, I think it was weak. So, and he's also, I mean, I met him. He's also a tiny man as well. He's small, yeah. He's right? not a big guy either. But I guess the argument could be with the two of them hoisting yeah, it. I don't know. Even 85 pounds between two small people, still really heavy. Well, didn't we test this out? We did. All right. So uh, we we tested this philosophy. We went to, or we tested this theory, I should yep. say. So what did we do, Amy? So um, somehow my stats match Melanie's almost perfectly, right? Yeah. We weighed me on camera and my height is 5'3". Um, it is between 5'2 and 5'3". I will admit that. <laughs> um, I was wearing a sneaker though that could have made up for that half an inch possibly. Um, but I am the same weight as her. I would argue I'm stronger than her. I never met her in person, but I do lift weights. And to me, she doesn't look like she does. No offense, Melanie. I never met you in person <laughs> when you were that size, but she looked, um, and I'm not patting myself on the back here, but she looked a little more puny than I do. I, or maybe that's just me hoping. But well, to be fair, Amy, you weighed it in 113 pounds, which was actually five pounds less than Melanie claimed she weighed. Okay, but my point is that I think I'm stronger than her. <laughs> and everyone listening, Amy's very strong. Um, Thank it was, you. It's also, it, it, so we're, we matched them. We used Amy as a test because did. They, they did. I mean, minus five pounds, yeah. they were the same height, same weight. They also had two small children at the same that's time. That's true. We're similar age. You know, it's like a, almost like a perfect match, right? So what would this be not an experiment, but a quasi-experiment or something. Yeah, I guess so. But I have to say, going into it, I was like pumped. I was like feeling like rocking. I'm like, I'm going to do this shit, you know? So what we did was we actually took a suitcase. We put 80 pounds of weights in it. And James videotaped this so we could show the viewers will or the listeners who will be viewers can see exactly... Right, the James weight caught that was it in. all. We're gonna put it up on the website. So we put eighty pounds into a suitcase. We went to the gym. We set a bar at thirty-eight inches. The reason we set it at thirty-eight was because of the settings. You could only set it at thirty-eight or forty-two. So we thought, let's err on the side yeah. of caution and yep. go, you know, less than. And we got Amy ready um, to lift that eighty pounds. And yeah, Amy, tell them about I how you were- could not even. I could not get any air on that suitcase. I and I kept trying, and I was like thinking to myself, it's not worth it. Don't hurt yourself. But at the same point. I wanted to prove that I was strong. So I was like trying really hard. I could not get any movement on that thing. No. No. Nope. We, we watched her. It was it was not happening at all. Not and, at uh, all. At one point, I thought you hurt your back. Yeah, I may have. We, we, we stopped you short of like really hurting yourself. And then I was like, all right, let's see what's going on. Let's yeah, see. Megan's definitely strong. I may be stronger than Melanie. Megan's definitely stronger than me. I'm stronger than Amy and I have about 30 pounds on her. So I went over and I'm like, I'm lifting this suitcase. No, you know, this is happening. And I, I felt the same way Amy yeah. did. I grabbed it. I couldn't get it off the ground. And I like, you know, really went at it and I could not move it either. There is no chance in hell that Melanie lifted a suitcase. So why don't we talk about it? We dropped the weight. Right. And at some point, I was able to get it over. But what did we do? So Amy said, okay, let's 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 go with this. Now, I'm glad you said this because I was yeah. like 80 pounds. I was willing to call it a day. Yeah. Amy said, let's take 20 pounds out and let's see what 60 pounds does. So Amy went. I still couldn't. 
I, I think I was able to get a little air, meaning I got it off the ground, maybe an inch, if I recall. You, yeah, I would say you got it off for if like that, a second. There for- was no way, even trying to balance it on my knee or on like um, the pole, there was no way I can get that up above. Like I couldn't budget at all. And I believe you tried the 60 as well. Oh, I came in at 60 and I, I've got it higher than me, but you did not get I it over. I was able to lift it up about two to three inches for about two seconds, maybe not even. I could not lift it past there. I mean, it was, it still hurt. Like mm-hmm. it was hard as hell. Um, so 60 pounds yeah. was an absolute no-go for either one of us. So we said, take some more out, right? So we dropped it to 40 pounds. And what happens at 40? I think that was when I was able to get it. It still was not easy. It was not easy, but I was able to do it. You were able to lift it, yeah. But there is no way that any of those suitcases were less than 40 pounds, right? There was some debate that maybe 80 or 85 or 90. There's no way any suitcase was less than I don't 40, think, right? I don't think so, given the weight uh, given the weight of his body. I it's mean, I, no suppo- way. I suppose you could argue that maybe the legs, the bottom part of the legs were 30 to 40 pounds. Okay, but she got other suitcases over too. It wasn't just that one suitcase, no, right? I mean, we're talking about eight, the, the biggest one, 80 to 90 pounds. She did not get that no. over by herself. And so Amy had said, what did you say during this? They should have done that trial. What would... It's like the OJ Simpson, the glove. If the glove doesn't fit, you must quit, yeah, right? It was... Oh, we should have thought of some cutesy slogan. I know. Like if you can't lift the suitcase, then something. I'm not quick enough to think of it now, but we should think of that. No. But that's also very powerful for a jury, jury to see. Yeah. Because they should have... I know, like, I'm wondering if, you know, they didn't put her on the stand. I'm wondering if allowing her to do some sort of... They, I don't see why they wouldn't have done that. The, they could have then visualized it. They had the exact suitcase. They could have made a replica of the suitcase and done the same exact thing we did. This is 90 pounds. This is 80. And they could have shown it. And they would have seen, Melanie, there is no way in hell. And at the very least, that could have established reasonable doubt. Absolutely. Basically, it discredits the prosecution story. Yes. So it was another missed opportunity. Yeah. I would love to talk to the defense attorneys and see why they didn't. They're much smarter than we are. I'm sure they would have. I'm sure they thought of that. Speak for yourself. I think I'm very smart. <laughs> I think you're very smart too. <laughs> but these are seasoned attorneys. No, you can't are... tell me they didn't think of it. They must have just thought maybe it wouldn't have mattered. I don't know. Well, maybe it would have been the, the you know, that exact reason what if she was able to hoist it. Or, but they you could know. have tested it at their offices before doing it in the courtroom. Yeah, I think this was a missed opportunity. Yeah, for sure. Next time on Direct Appeal, will Melanie testify or remain silent? Also, did Melanie write the prosecutor an anonymous letter about Bill's murder or is it from the real killer? Direct Appeal is hosted by Megan Sachs and Amy Schlossberg. Our producer is James Varga. The story arc was written by Megan Sachs. Music and underscore by Dessert Media. Recorded, mixed, and edited by Justin Crowell at JC Studios. Special thanks to Alan Tuckerman, whose work was integral to this production. If you have a tip, you can submit through our website or by emailing tips at directappealpodcast.com.